You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. But if you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 today. Uh, page 1022 is where you'll find that text in most of the black hardcover Bibles. And I should also mention that those are there uh, for you to use during this time. They're also there uh, if you or someone you know doesn't own a Bible. Go ahead and take that with you today. We'd love to give those away. Uh, But page 1022 is where you'll find uh, today's text. If you've been with us, we've been walking through a series in the letter of 1 John. And we've been reading that in the face of significant and deceptive opposition, John is writing to this group of first century Christians to offer them assurance about the truth of Jesus, and about their identity as children of God. And in today's text, we're going to read that love is the strongest evidence of our faith. We're going to read that love, our love specifically for each other, is what proclaims to the world, not only has Jesus been raised, but we ourselves have passed from death to life. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. And the word there in the original language means siblings, so we could say brothers and sisters that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit inspired the prophets and the apostles, the writers of scripture. Your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. We ask now that you would send your spirit to give us deeper insight and encouragement and faith and renewed hope through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen one. Amen. Amen. Well, here's the the big idea for today's text. Love is the evidence that we have passed from death to life. And having seen this love most clearly in Jesus, Christians labor to love in our everyday lives. Christians labor to love in our everyday lives. We're going to look at four things that John highlights in this text. Love's evidence, love's essence, love's example, And then finally, everyday love. Everyday love. Love's evidence, love's essence, love's example, and everyday love. So first, let's talk about love's evidence. 
How can you tell if someone is a Christian? How can you tell if someone else is a Christian? Of all the ways that we might answer that question, someone who attends church regularly, someone who reads their Bible a lot, someone who makes moral and ethical choices in their lives, someone who tells other people about Jesus, of all the answers we might give, the Bible actually elevates one thing as the marker, the evidence that we are Christians. And it's love for one another. Love for fellow Christians. The day before he went to the cross, after washing his disciples' feet in the upper room, Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the same author that recorded that in the Gospel of John, now writing this letter, 1 John, picks up Jesus' command here in verse 11 and says, that's the message you've been hearing from the beginning. From the time that you first heard this good news about Jesus, from the time you first believed, the message you've heard is, we are to love one another. Here though, in verse 14, John takes it a step further. He says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers, because we love our brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians. So love doesn't just identify us as Jesus's disciples. It is the evidence that we have passed from death to life. It's the evidence that we have passed from death to life. Throughout the Bible, one of the strongest metaphors, one of the strongest pictures for our salvation is the the picture of new life. New life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul writes. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. See, to become a Christian is nothing less than a resurrection. It's nothing less than a resurrection. It is to pass from death to life. Today, Easter Sunday, is the day of days. It's the day of days. It's the day that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, passed through death and triumphed over it. He died. But as we read in our scripture reading this morning, he is alive forevermore. Amen? Amen. It is also, Easter is also the day that made your resurrection possible, my resurrection possible. We, us, we were dead in sin. But as John wrote in, in John, as Jesus said in John chapter 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So Easter is the death of death. Easter is also the death of your death. It is the day it became possible for you to experience a resurrection, for you to go from death to life. And the clearest evidence that we can give of our own resurrection is our love for one another. It is the mark of a Christian. It's what sometimes has been called the final apologetic, the strongest defense, the strongest argument that this is true and that we have come to know and believe in Jesus. Now, if you're like me, this whole past week of Holy Week, but especially this weekend of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, these are days when I think a lot about people in my life, uh, people who I love, who at this moment do not 
know Jesus, to not have any real desire to follow him. Uh, People who I long and who I pray would come to believe in Jesus. People who I pray would experience one day their own resurrection. At the end of the day, I have to acknowledge I have very limited ability. I can't make that happen. The Holy Spirit has to do really powerful work in someone's heart that none of us is able to do. But I do want you to see this morning, this is something that is within your power to do. You can love one another. As someone who has been raised up with Jesus, someone who has passed from death to life, love becomes an essential part of our work. It becomes an essential part of our mission in this world. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. He said, People will not believe only on the basis of the proper answers. The world must have the proper answers to their honest questions. But at the same time, there must be a oneness in love between all true Christians. And he goes on to write, If I am not willing to do this, the world has a right to question whether Jesus was sent from God and whether Christianity is true. That's the audacity of what Jesus says about about our love. He invites the world, think about this, he invites the world, people who at present are not uh, with God, are not part of God and his family, he invites the world to observe and to evaluate Christians' lives, to evaluate Christians' love and to see, okay, does that person still smell like death? Do they still abide in death? Or are they someone by the way they love, that looks like maybe they've passed from death and into life. You know how we, we tend to treat our sports teams, professional athletes? None of us, as far as I'm aware in this room, are professional athletes. And yet, uh, most of us feel kind of an entitlement to critique and to evaluate professional athletes when we watch them on TV. Right? Like we flip on a game of some kind, and there's somebody playing like, man, that guy's gotten out of shape while eating another donut you know, on our couch. Or like, man, she's just not playing up to, up to par today. She's, just, she's, she's playing terribly. Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's actually an invitation Jesus has given you. He's, he's given you a green light to be a Monday morning quarterback toward people who are Christians. Even though you at this moment do not believe in his death and resurrection, you don't trust in it for your salvation, he's actually given you the right to observe and evaluate people who claim to be Christians And to see something of his resurrection, of the truth and the love of Jesus in the way they love each other. Now, will Christians fall short of that? You better believe they're going to fall short of that. I fall short of that all the time. And and when we do, what I hope you see is our love for each other in the way we pursue repentance and forgiveness. See, when I fall short, it's not ever the right response for me to say to someone who's not a Christian. It's not ever the right response for me to become self-righteous and say, well, why don't you try it? Why don't you get off your couch and get in the game and give it a shot? You'll see how hard it actually is to love other people and to follow Jesus. No, the right response is always, please forgive me for the way I've become an obstacle. Please forgive me for the way I've obscured in this moment your view of the worth of Jesus and his love for us, his love for me. Sincere Christians, though far from perfect, are people who pursue love for one another. Christians are people who desire that their whole lives, that their love gives evidence that not only Jesus, but but that we ourselves have passed from death to life. 
And so Christians here in the room this morning, let me challenge you to something. Sometime this week, I want to challenge you to ask a family member or to ask a friend who doesn't at this moment claim to be a Christian to evaluate your life. And that's going to take a ton of humility. It's going to take a lot of security in your identity as a child of God. But I would, call, I would challenge you to ask, is it evident from my life that I love other people? Is the way that I love evidence that I have passed from a state of death into a state of new life? That's love's evidence. Second, let's talk about love's essence. Love's essence. John uses a a lot of contrast in this letter. And if you've been with us, you've already heard him contrast light from darkness. Uh, You've heard him contrast truth from lies. You've heard him contrast life and death. In this passage, he contrasts love and hate. Love and hate. And he points to two individuals, Cain and Christ in order to contrast the essence of of each of those things. And what John goes on to say here is that the essence of hate is murder. The essence of hate is murder. The essence of love is self-sacrifice. Or to say it another way, the essence of hate is to take another's life, but the essence of love is to give up your own. It's to give up your own. Cain and we read about him in Genesis chapter 4, very beginning, near the very beginning of the Bible. He's one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain murdered his brother, Abel. Why did he do that? Well, Abel brought an acceptable sacrifice to God. Cain did not. And in that moment, God invited him to repent and to, to then bring an acceptable sacrifice. But Cain chose hatred. Cain chose murder instead. And this is actually ever since that time, become a well-worn pattern in human history. Jealousy becomes hatred. Hatred becomes murder. Over and over again, that's played out in the history of our world. It's actually exactly what drove the Jewish religious leaders in the first century to call for Jesus' execution, to call for his crucifixion. Their jealousy of Jesus, that, that people were leaving them and following him, drove them to hatred, and their hatred drove them to call for murder. And that's why, for example, in places like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus so closely associates anger and hatred with murder. He says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, quoting one of the Ten Commandments there. But, but I say to you, Jesus says, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And to our ears, that sounds harsh. That sounds harsh because very few people, percentage-wise, physically murder another person. But everyone gets angry with other people. Nearly everyone struggles with hatred, feelings of hatred toward other people. But what Jesus is saying is that the root of these sins is the same. The essence of hate is murder. And so everyone who hates his brother is, at heart, a murderer. In one of Flannery O'Connor's short stories called A Good Man is Hard to Find, she includes a a character that's named the misfit. The misfit. And the misfit in this story is a serial killer. Not a good individual. But he stands out 
in the story as the character, the only one who is honest about the human condition. It's a stark difference from the religious and the pious talking characters that also are in this story. They are often speaking very self-righteously about how evil the world is. They're often speaking about how, how, how downhill things have gone in their lifetime, all while failing to recognize their own disdain, their own hatred for other people, including the members of their own family. And there's a whole background and context to this, but at one point, the misfit is interacting with some members of this family, and he, he, starts, he starts thinking and, and postulating this way. He says this, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He's thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. And his voice had become almost a snarl. Now that's more honest than most of us are willing to be. The misfit who did not claim to be a Christian, who did not believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, he lived consistently in light of his rejection. Murder and meanness, hatred is what's consistent for those who abide in death, but not for those who have passed from death to life, not for those who have been resurrected themselves through Jesus's resurrection. Only love is consistent with that because where hate takes the life of another, love gives up life for another. The essence of love is to give up your own life. And that is, after all, how Jesus himself demonstrated the depth of his love for us. The essence of love is not to take another's life, it's to give up your own. It's self-sacrifice. As we got to commemorate together on Good Friday, though Jesus had every right to demand our lives, though he had every right to call for our execution, what he instead did was lay down his life for us. Where Cain serves as the example of murder and of hate, Christ is the example of self-sacrificial and substitutionary love. And so third, let's, let's talk more about that. Let's talk about love's example. Love's example. Look again at, at verse 16, 1 John chapter 3. The apostle writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We live in a moment where society plays fast and loose with the word love, where the definition of of the word love is really open to interpretation. And in most cases, it has everything to do with how another person or how something else makes us feel in any given moment. But John here in this text is reminding Christians, you have a definition. You have an unmovable anchor for the word love and what it means. He says, by this, we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And see, far more than a, than a definition, this is our hope. This is our assurance in this life. John is writing this whole letter so that you may know, that you may know all of these things. He's, but he's writing specifically that you may know love. And he's saying, you do know it. You have experienced it. When Jesus laid down his life, this he did for you. This he did for you. So Jesus' love is not just our example. Jesus' love is our salvation. 
And on this weekend in particular, we recognize that what we never could have done for ourselves, Jesus did for us. He took our place in death after living a sinless life. We never could have done either, either of those things. He defeated death. He overcame the grave. We never could have done that. We were dead in our sin. As it's been famously said, dead people can't make themselves alive again. But God can. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And why did he do it? Paul writes there in Ephesians 2, it's because of the great love with which he loved us. See, his love is our salvation. It's our salvation. But what John is saying in this text is that his love is not only our salvation, it is also our example. That's why he says in the second half of verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Just as when we were dead in our sin, we needed to receive his love. Now that we have passed from death to life, we are to reproduce his love. We are to imitate it. We are to emulate it in the way we love others. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And on the very next day, Jesus did just that. He did just that. So having been saved by that love, having been saved by his love, we are now called to lay down our own lives. And this is why when we read the example of someone like Catherine Kuntz, she was the the headmaster of the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. And when we read about someone like Catherine Kuntz, we know that we have glimpsed real love in the midst of the the horrific and and tragic shooting that occurred at the Covenant School about a week and a half ago, from reports of people that were there, it appears that that Dr. Kuntz heard gunshots, ended a a Zoom call that she was on in that moment, and immediately went to the gunshots. She went to where she heard the shots coming from. For the sake of her students, for the sake of her staff, she ran toward the danger. She ran into the darkness. Catherine Kuntz, a week and a half ago, laid down her life. But when she did, the world gained a present-day tangible picture of the very love of Jesus, who lays down his life for another. Right? And, we, and we know instinctively when we read about Catherine Kuntz, when we read about what she did a week and a half ago, we know that this is an echo of the true story of the world. We know that that's how it's supposed to be. The people who love others are willing to love them all the way to that extreme, to that kind of depth. And if we have come ourselves to know the love of Jesus, we hope that if ever a situation like that would present itself, we would find ourselves doing exactly the same thing, that we would be people who ran into the darkness and laid down our lives for the life of another, that we would trade our life for the life of another. I want you to to ask yourself today, in light of Jesus' life and death love, would you follow his example? Would you be willing to lay down your own life for the life of another? If it ever came to that, would you be willing to do that? At the end of the day, you can never really know the answer to that question unless it happens. Unless it happens. But actually what John goes on to write here is that in a way, you can know. In a way, you can know or at least have a really good idea. Because the truth is, the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, 
dying for another, is really the capstone of hundreds of smaller acts of self-sacrifice. Laying down your life to the point of death is the result of laying down your life in comparatively smaller ways over a long period of time. And that's actually how John concludes this, this text, this portion of the letter, not with the extreme, but with the everyday, the everyday. And so fourth and finally, let's talk about everyday love, everyday love. In every generation, there are some Christians who will be called to die for the sake of others. It's always been true for the last 2000 years. In every generation, some Christians will lay down their life far more often and probably what will be the case for most of us in this room, we will not be called to lose our lives, but will instead be called to open our hearts and to open our hands. Far more often, we will be called not to that ultimate sacrifice, but to the everyday sacrifices of time and energy and of money and comfort and all other kinds of things like that. See, it's one thing for us to be willing to die for another, but the real question is, what if I go on living? What if I go on living? Am I willing to go on living today and every day with love, with self-sacrificial love for others? It's really notable, especially in the original language, that from verse 16 in this text to verse 17, John shifts from the plural to the singular. So in verse 16, he writes, it's laying down our lives for the brothers or the brothers and sisters, plural, But in verse 17, it's if anyone sees his brother, singular, one person. It's like what C.S. Lewis wrote years ago. He said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. C.S. Lewis concludes that thought by saying, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. It's a good, profound word, is it not? Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Or related to this, the insight that Dostoevsky included in the book, The Brothers Karamazov, he wrote, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. Men will even give their lives if only the ordeal does not last long, but is soon over, with all looking on and applauding as though on stage. But active love is labor and fortitude. See, everyday love that John writes about here, it's not generic, it's personal. Everyday love is not one heroic act that's over fast. It's a lifetime of labor and fortitude. And as John includes here in verse 18, the last verse of our text, everyday love is not a matter of word and talk. Everyday love is a matter of deed and truth. Talk can be cheap. Talk can be really cheap. If you want to observe real everyday love, don't listen for it. Look for it. Don't use your ears as much as you use your eyes. See it indeed and in truth. This morning, as we get to celebrate Jesus' resurrection together, as I was praying and and preparing for our time today, I was overwhelmed with gratitude for the way I see everyday love playing out here in our midst, in this church family. We have deacons 
who are giving rides to people every week, who are facilitating financial gifts to people who have substantial need. The Rogers, two weeks ago, got to complete their adoption of Jazir and Jahara. Talk about a lifetime of labor and fortitude of love for kids that didn't have parents and now do. The way that Janine Rocky cares for her mom comes with her every week. It's great to have Jean and Janine here every week, the way Janine loves her mom. The way uh, Nate Folk and Michelle Skinner showed up for their fathers at the end of their lives. So we grieve with them this morning. The way Dana Sherwood showed up for her father and her family as her father's going through substantial medical things right now. The way Laura and Bob Lipscomb have loved each other as husband and wife as each of them have gone through substantial medical issues. Kristen Seitz is living in Washington State for a couple months right now so she can help her daughter-in-law as she prepares to have a baby. The Connect family. Uh, Anna got to celebrate her 20th birthday a couple weeks ago. Uh, She was not supposed to make her first birthday. But as amazing as that is to celebrate that she's reached 20 years old, the labor and fortitude of love from the members of that family to care for her day in and day out. I don't know if you know them, but that is what everyday love looks like. That's what everyday love looks like. That's what it means to love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And, And this is just a couple examples, a handful of examples from the past two weeks of our life together. No doubt there are so many more and so many of you are participating in everyday love for each other. And so with joy, with hope in my heart, I get to stand before you this morning and testify that because Jesus Christ is alive, we ourselves have passed from death to life. And the evidences of his love are playing out around us and among us in this church day in and day out. Would you open your eyes and see them this morning? We have passed from death to life. That is, after all, the way, friends, that you have been loved. Jesus did not just come into this world and make a lot of noise with his mouth. He didn't just say something. He did something. It is because Jesus Christ went to the cross. It is because God raised him up on the third day that we have passed from death to life. And so, men and women, because you have been loved not simply in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us love one another. Let your life always overflow with evidence of your own resurrection. Because Jesus died and is alive forevermore, may you always be willing to lay down your life in love. Pray that we would always be willing to do that. But even more, every single day that you find breath in your lungs, may you open your hearts May you open your hands. May you love one another with the very love you have received from Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of our salvation, you have restored us to life. In your love, you have brought us into the triumphant death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray that that as Jesus burst forth from the tomb on that first Easter, that first resurrection day so many years ago, that new life would burst forth from us and show itself in everyday self-sacrificial acts of love for one another and for our neighbors in this broken and hurting world. Jesus, as you live forevermore, as you alone are the source and hope of our own resurrection, 
We ask now that you would keep our hearts in your love. We ask now that as we prepare to come to your table, that you would renew our love for you and others so that today and each day we might live and speak and serve as your very loving presence in this time and place. We pray this all for your glory. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.